0: Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jeremiah this morning, the book of Jeremiah in chapter 29, Jeremiah chapter 29. We live in a day, in an era really, of a lack of commitment. I was thinking about this when it comes to just our community. Do you remember the day when just a handshake or a word spoken was the same as a written agreement? Maybe you don't. It used to be that way for the most part. Obviously, mankind is sinful, so we haven't always uh, even followed through in the best of maybe the eras of our country. But most of the time, your word or a handshake used to be as good as a written agreement. Now, you even find written agreements trying to be gotten out of. Happens all the time. Now, we also have in our community the whole idea of people trying to be hired. And I heard on the radio a few weeks ago, I was driving and I heard somebody calling into a local uh, talk show. And they were, it was a man who was in charge of a landscape company. And he said, I will hire somebody. I will actually, the night before, they will say, I'll see you tomorrow. And he said, they won't come. And the guy said, what percentage? He said, 50%. 50%. I've also experienced this, and many of you have as well, inviting people to church when they say, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. You call them that morning, yes, I'll be there in a little bit, and they don't show up. You've been there before? Okay. Doesn't just, it, it can be all walks of life, low income, high income, you know, just there's a, a sense today in our nation, just of a, you know, in our culture, community, a lack of commitment. You know, the work ethic issue is, is definitely real. I was thinking about also something I heard a few, maybe it was even a year ago, I don't remember, and they were talking about, uh, this man was talking about hiring, and he was talking about how he would do these job interviews, and these kids would come in to be hired, and not always just kids, and they would, uh, you know, they're college graduates or maybe a little bit older, and they come in there, all of a sudden their phone would buzz or beep, and they would, while they're in the interview, they would look at whatever it was, maybe even a Facebook notification. They would take a call in an interview, and this wasn't like grandma's dying kind of a call. This was, you know, um, hey, how's it going? You know, and they would just talk. they said it's amazing the percentage of people that would even, in a moment like that, behave that way. Now, as believers, I think we've let that kind of come into our church a little bit. I know in our country, and I'm thankful this isn't most of the case here, but there's kind of a take it or leave it mentality toward assembling with God's people. You know hey, I don't, need, I don't need that service. That's not really that important. When the Lord says in Hebrews, the importance of assembling one with another and not really take it or leave it mentality, not to forsake it. Especially, I don't know about you, but after the, in the last two years especially, don't you see the day coming? I'm not saying the day of the Lord coming. I see it. Very real. It could still be way out, but man, it sure seems like it could be any time with how the events of this world are shaping up. And I don't mean that pessimistically. I'm not a doomsdayer. I'm excited. If God comes now, that's exciting, but I'll tell you, he's got a mission for us to do. But many of God's people have gotten lazy, and so what are pastors doing? They're shutting their church services down constantly. It's just pervasive across the country. There's also a lack of commitment to investing in lives today, where we, we there are. I think there's greater needs than ever in lives, just because of our broken culture. But we really, as believers, many times we're not really that committed to seeing people through, no matter what it takes in our life. But I think a lot of this comes, and really, the source of the issue comes, especially for believers, is because we really are not committed to truly pursuing God with our whole heart. Some of us here may be good at the form of even doing an hour with God, but we struggle truly getting to know God. I've had folks even in my own office saying, you know, I really want to follow the Lord and I want to spend that time. I just you know, and, and sometimes it's not for a lack of, of seeking the Lord, but there's a lack of believing that God is actually meeting with him and that he will. As we were contemplating this morning, pastor asked me to speak on this subject of the fact that he will be found if you seek him. Friend, in these weeks ahead, God is calling our church to a commitment not to check a box for six weeks to say you spent an hour with God, but he's calling us to a commitment to seek him with our whole heart. So that we can find him. So that he can transform our lives. I know this morning as we look at. We'll be looking at this passage in just a moment. I know I'm a man who needs to learn so much about this. I come this morning broken about my need, But excited about the one I'm going to be finding in these days ahead too. Because I know he wants to be found. Hudson Taylor he had been serving for 15 years in China. He went as a young man. I've been to Brighton, England. Uh, when I was a seventh grader. We were on the way to Holy Land and had some time in, in London because our uh, plane they had plane issues, and so we were stuck there for a day. And so we went to Brighton, England there on the English Channel, and we saw the place where Hudson Taylor went off to, to China, sailed off from there. He was a young man dedicated and committed. But he was also a toiling burden fella. He, he was involved in ministry, had all kinds of responsibilities and burdens, but he articulated a note to his mom. He said, you know, I've earnestly and effectively been endeavoring to serve God, You know, but it's just life is such a, a challenge. And he had a hunger and a thirst. And he says this, my own position becomes continually more and more responsible and my need greater of special grace to fill it. But I've continually to mourn that I follow at such a distance and learn so slowly to imitate my precious master. I cannot tell you how I am buffeted sometimes by temptation. I never knew uh, how bad a heart I had. Yet I do know that I love God and I love his work and I desire to serve him only in all things. And I value above all things that precious Savior in whom I alone can be accepted. He says, often when I am tempted I, to think that one so full of sin cannot be a child of God at all, but I try to throw it back and rejoice all the more in the preciousness of Jesus and in the riches of his grace. He was talking about the struggle that he was praying. He said, pray for me. Pray that the Lord will keep me from sin, will sanctify me wholly. And so he was searching, he was hungry, he was seeking, he, he was toiling though in, in the missionary life and what he had been called to was not clicking. It, just, it, was, it was not what it could be in, in its fullness. And he received a letter from a fellow missionary that changed his life. And it said this, to let my loving Savior work in me his will, my sanctification is what I would live for by his grace. Abiding, not striving or struggling, looking often to him, trusting Him for present power, trusting Him to subdue all inward corruption, resting in the love of an almighty Savior in the conscious joy of a complete salvation, a salvation from all sin. This is His word, willing that He will should truly be supreme that this is not new and yet tis new to me i feel as though the first dawning of a glorious day had risen upon me and he just talks about how god was meeting with him and how he was experiencing victory in christ and when brother taylor hudson taylor read that letter it just it grabbed him it, it convicted him greatly and he really had a meeting with god at that moment and and uh he began his perspective he began to seek the lord and understood what it meant to find him and this is the testimony of him he says writing to his sister a little while later as he had been really experiencing God's presence in his life. He says, as to work, mine was never so plentiful, so responsible, or so so difficult. So he's saying this, life's gotten harder. It's not gotten easier. But the weight and strain are all gone. The last month or more has been perhaps the happiest of my life. And I long to tell you a little what the Lord has done for my soul. I do not know how far I may be able to make myself intelligible about it, for there is nothing new or strange or wonderful, and yet all is new. In the word, whereas once I was blind, now I see. And he talked about how the agony of soul was at its height, and that missionary had sent that letter, and the Spirit of God revealed the truth of His oneness with Jesus, like he had never known before. And he said, he said he realized what it meant to have his faith strengthened, not by striving after faith but by resting on the faithful one. And he was writing to others and corresponding how the life of abiding in Christ and what it meant to walk with Jesus became alive. And as we know, God used Hudson Taylor mightily in China to see ultimately many thousands, tens of thousands come to Christ. His ministry never got easier. His life never got simpler. But his spirit was at rest as he Sought the Lord and found him because he was seeking with him, seeking him with all his heart. In fact, it was pretty obvious. Uh, There was a missionary that had much less in his mind responsibility than Hudson Taylor. He says, you know, I was altogether different. You know, Hudson Taylor never knew nothing of a rush or hurry. Never had quivering nerves or vexation of spirit. He knew there was a peace passing all understanding and that he could not do without it. He couldn't live without knowing God. He couldn't live without meeting with God. See, Huston Taylor got to the point where he was finding the Lord. He was finding the reality of that relationship and he's like, I can't live without it. That's what life is all about. That's why we're talking about meeting with God. It's not a matter of feeling like you've achieved something. It's basically, it's existing. It's the only way you can exist. He said, this is what the missionary said. He said, I was different. Mine was particularly nervous. I was, had a busy life, but I found myself in tremor all the day long. I didn't enjoy the Lord as I knew I ought. Nervous agitation possessed me as long as there was anything to be done. And then he said to the Husband the, he said, I'm in the, I'm, I'm in the study. You're in the big spare room. <laughs> he said, uh, you're occupied with millions. I have tens. Your letters are pressingly important. Mine of comparatively little moment. Yet I am worried and distressed. while well, you're always calm. What makes the difference? He said this, the peace you speak of is, uh, of is in my case more than a delightful privilege. It's a necessity. I could not possibly get through the work I have to do without the peace of God, which passeth all understanding. He began to recognize what the exchange life was all about. It's my weakness, his strength. And he lived it. The life that is Christ is abiding and abounding. It's satisfying and overflowing. Hudson Taylor could not find words more adequate to express the truth of the scriptures he approved uh, when he talked about just how God had changed his life. And um, I can't go through all that that's here. This is in the book, uh, They Found the Secret. By, uh, you've heard Dr. Jim and refer to this book, maybe even this illustration. But I was struck by Hudson Taylor's story, and I was also struck by John Hyde. Here was a man who was on a ship heading toward India. John Hyde had come from a, a home where he was Uh, you know his dad was a a pastor and he was an outstanding pastor had a great heritage and uh, he you know he had great training christian college he was seminary trained he was going to missions sincere guy and he gets a letter from a friend and as he reads this letter he just takes it and crumples it and throws it on the ground why why does he think i need the fullness of the spirit was his point why do i need that i i already have all this and, uh, but then God worked in his heart, and he uncrumpled the note that he had thrown down, and he opened it up and read it several times. And the Holy Spirit began to convict him that he actually did need to know God and live in His presence. And so, during those first twelve years of his ministry there in India, he began to learn what it meant to seek the Lord. And yet, he was obviously doing a lot of behind-the-scenes work, learning the language. It was a difficult time, but he was devoted to following God's will and plan for his life. But Uh, There was still some barrenness there, and it drove him and others to deeper depths of travail and prayer into wider frontiers of faith. And there was a group uh, called the Punjab Prayer Union that formed because they were inspired by his prayer life. And here are some questions they had if you were going to join their group, so their principles. Are you praying for quickening in your own life, in the life of your fellow workers and in the church? Are you longing for greater power of the Holy Spirit in your own life and work? And are you convinced, get, get, get this phrase, folks. That you cannot go on without this power. I don't think, don't think we're that convinced. I'm not. Like I should be. Will you pray that you may not be ashamed of Jesus? Do you believe that prayer is the great means for securing the spiritual awakening? And then their challenge was at noon to pray for an awakening every day for at least a half hour. a spiritual awakening there. Now what came out of the result of this prayer movement It's hard to even put into words. Caring John High was a man who could walk into a room. He he met with the Lord. He walked into a room, and one time the story is told, he walked into an audience there, and they were expecting him to speak. And he says, "I thank God that He's given me no message for you today." And the the man who was in charge of the meeting, thankfully, was sensitive enough spiritually to say, "Okay, the Holy Spirit's in charge of this moment. We're not talking about strange fire here." People began to speak as God was convicting their heart, and there was not any sense of license in this moment or strange fire. It was the liberty of the spirit, and what happened was it was great mental agony and intense physical uh, strain as they began to sense God's His reality there, and what happened was is there was an unbelievable confession of sin and then great hope given at that moment. But praying John Hyde was also a man who, with the thinking of the burden of meeting with God and then that tying to uh, winning souls for Christ, this is a man that had, he and Hudson, Hudson Taylor would be two examples of men who had those beautifully unified, because they are. If you're genuinely meeting with God, the soul, the aspect of souls is going to come right in. In fact, he was a tireless witness, and he received assurance in prayer. And by the way, you can't have this goal unless God speaks to you about it. But God told him, I want you to have at least one soul to the Savior each day during 1908. There were more than 400 converts that he saw saved. The following year, the Lord laid two souls a day on his heart. God answered it. The following year, his faith was enlarged to claim four. God answered it. One time, he came to a village, and God was speaking to his heart as he was just taking time with God. And, and, and God said, "I'm going to, I'm going to give you ten souls here." Again, by the way, folks, I'm saying this. You can't just do this. This is something that comes from your union with God and the reality of walking with Him. And so, as he was at that uh, village, he was going into a he came into a hut, and I believe in. He, he was able to lead nine people to Christ. And by the way, if any of you had a moment where you saw nine saved, wouldn't that be kind of fulfilling and encouraging? Yeah. And uh, you'd say, oh, praise the Lord. And you'd step away from that thinking, but he, God had put 10 on his heart. And he said, where's the other one that God would have us to see saved? He was so passionate that God would work. And, and uh, uh, the, the, the fellow who was there uh, that said, we need to move the native workers, said we gotta move on, we gotta move forward, and keep going. High persisted, he said, there's somebody else that needs Christ. And what about that one? And sure enough, the father that was in that home, just a brand new Christian, God worked in his heart. He had a nephew who had been outside of the home, brought him inside, and he led him to Christ. Ten came to Christ. The point is, though, with praying John Hyde is he was a man who sought the Lord with his whole heart. And guess what? He found him. In fact, Pastor Van Geldern had the opportunity to be with one of praying Hyde's disciples who had been greatly impacted by his life. And he said, man, you... You're with a man like that, he said, you know, just being with him, you could sense. It wasn't anything, I'm not talking about mysterious or weird. You just sensed the presence of God as this man met with God. In fact, uh, J. Wilbur Chapman talks about a meeting that was going nowhere where he was at. It was in an area, a very difficult area, almost no attendance. Praying Hyde showed up, began to intercede. The tie turned. The hall was packed. Fifty men trusted Christ in the next service. And He was, as he was leaving. Uh, he said, Mr. Hyde, I want you to pray for me. So John Hyde comes to his room, turns the key in the door, drops on his knees, waits five minutes without a single syllable coming from his lips. You know how many times we'll just rush into prayer, and it's not always wrong to pray right away, of course. But in this case, here's a man who was just, and then he just says, oh God. His face was lifted up, tears streaming down his face, and then for another five minutes at least he's still again. And when he knew he was walking in the presence of God as he was sensing God, he came up and put his... Arm around J. Wilbur Chapman's shoulder, and he prayed for him in a way, in a petition. He says that he he says for men I had never heard before. He said, "I rose from my knees to know what real prayer was." Here's what I'm trying to say: God's wanting every single one of us here at Falls Baptist Church this summer to experience what it means to seek the Lord with all of our heart and to find Him. Jeremiah chapter 29 is actually a very appropriate passage for us. We know the new, the Old Testament application for us is how God dealt with the children of Israel, children of Judah here in this case, is how He deals with us as individual believers. And so uh, I find this to be a very instructive passage. They had uh, been exiled, many of them, to Babylon, and this is a letter from Jeremiah to them. I'm going to go ahead and start in verse 8. It says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel... Let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, and causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. As we think about meeting with God this summer and taking this passage of Scripture and applying it to us, the first thing I'd like for us to see here is that we need to embrace truth as our guide. Truth must be our guide. You're going to have false voices that are out there. And here Jeremiah is saying, reject the false voices. What were these false voices that were coming into the people of Israel, or to the people of Judah that had been exiled from Jerusalem? Well, the fact is, if you want to turn over to chapter 28 of Jeremiah, right there, the page over, it says, basically, they come to speak uh, to the people. And you find here Hananiah is the one doing it. In verse 2 it says thus speaketh the lord of hosts so this prophet is proclaiming and using god invoking god in this he says i have broken the yoke of the king of babylon within 2 full years will i bring again into this place all the vessels of the lord's house what's the problem with this god had told them you're going to be exiled for 70 years he's saying this false prophet saying 2 years you're going to be back it's all going to be great and uh, you're going to be back gathered together Now, this sounded spiritual, it was coated with spirituality, it had some things that sounded right, and Jeremiah himself says, hey, this sounds good, Uh, it would be great, you know, amen, it would be wonderful for the Lord to do this, but very clearly he knew that it was not right, and he comes with the word of God later in that chapter, he says, um, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast broken the yokes of wood, verse 13, but Thou shalt not make for them yokes of iron. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron upon the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And they shall serve him, and I have given him the beast of the field also. All right, and he says, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent thee, but Thou makest this people to trust in a lie. Let me just say it this, this way. There's a lot of things out there, a lot of teaching out there that will cause us to think, hey, sometimes it comes from extremes in the charismatic world, like a Joel Osteen who says, hey, you can have your best life now. It's all going to be great. You know, it just, uh, you know, it, there's, there's, there's a philosophy where you're going to get wealthy and you're going to be blessed. And it's skipping the fact that because of the result of our sin and because of God's chastisement in our life, there is a process that he has to work. OK, he told the children of Israel, look, you're going to be. Uh, For 70 years, you're going to be in exile. This is part of my plan for you. And the prophets are saying, hey, you're going to get out of it in two years. And he's saying, no. What was the purpose, though? He says, don't, in verse 9 of Jeremiah 27, he says, Therefore hearken not ye to your prophets, nor to your diviners, nor to your enchanters, nor to your sorcerers, which speak unto you, saying ye shall not serve the king of Babylon. Because the purpose of what the false teachers were saying is, look, you can get rid of this yoke. And God ultimately said, "You're you're going to have the iron yoke. The wooden yoke that you're talking about, yeah, you can rip that off, but you're going to have the iron yoke of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. All right? And so they were rejecting the path that God had for them to follow. Then we find here not only are we to reject the false voices, but, as we've mentioned, to follow God's word. Because here he says here, I'm going to bring you back after 70 years. I'm going to promise that you're going to return here to this place. But the promise was in the context here of what they were going to, the path that they were going to have to follow. I want you to see uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 a good illustration of this where Peter himself says, Servants, be subject to your own masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongly. For what glory is it when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. I could keep going on and reading this passage. A lot of you know it. But the context is, We need to be willing as believers when we have sinned against God and when our lives have been barren, we are going to be reaping the corruption that we've sown. And so God doesn't just say, "Okay, corruption has gone. He follows through with that. But the point is, is in the midst of the reaping of the corruption, God's will for our lives is to be sowing to the spirit, to be seeking him and experience his life. And we will actually know him in a way we never could have even dreamed. And so we have to embrace truth. Don't try to get out of the difficulty. Don't try to push things aside in your life to make life easier. Let God do His full work that He wants to do. Why? Well, let's look at verse uh, verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, and cause you to return to this place. And then verse 11 here. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. The second thing here, not only are we to embrace truth as your guide, but secondly, as we think about seeking God's face and finding him, we need to accept God's heart toward us. The fact is, he says, I'm for you. I'm for you. In verse 11, for I know the thoughts I think toward you. They're thoughts of peace. He was very passionate and interested in their well-being, prosperity, and even their security. In the Old Testament, this was linked with a covenant. The presence of peace is God's gift. Of course, we know in, the, in prophecy, it's the ultimate end time hope of God's full salvation. But in the New Testament, we know his longed for peace is understood as having come in Christ. And it's able to be experienced by faith. God has an incredible plan for your life. And it's a plan. His thoughts towards you are not, as we'll see in a moment, thoughts of evil. They're thoughts of peace. Thoughts of fulfillment. In fact, look over at Jeremiah 24, verse 5. This is very interesting because in the midst of, look, the people of, of uh, Israel, uh, Judah and Israel, had I mean, they had, they had done awful wickedness against God. For years they had turned their back on God. And here's what the Lord says in verse 5 of 24. He says, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them, that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. Remember, folks, as the child of God, you should never look at anything in life, even the result of your sin, as something that God is trying to hurt you with. Everything he's allowing in your life is for your good. Look, some of you have made some big uh, sinful choices, and they're big to you because the results are big. You've failed in relationships, maybe. You've failed in certain areas, and you're reaping it right now. But let me tell you, God's thoughts toward you are not thoughts of evil this morning. If you will humbly respond to him, verse 11 of chapter 29 is your, what you are to accept. I think toward you these thoughts, he says, and they're thoughts of peace and not of evil. So here we find Jeremiah 24. He says, I will set mine eyes upon them for their good. I will bring them again to this land. I will build them, not pull them down. I will plant them. Not pluck them up. I will give them in heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Let me just say, church, I don't care how discouraged you might be in your walk with God this morning, I don't care how you feel like you failed God. What I just read is what he's thinking about you right now. He's saying, Yes, you failed me. Yes, you've turned your back on me. Yes, you've sinned here. Yes, you've done that. And, I, and you're going to be reaping the cause of that or the, the result of that. But let me say, your God is a God that right now is saying, I love you. I think thoughts of peace toward you this morning. I have, as we'll see in a moment, an expected end for you. I want your life to count. Even these people that had so turned their back on him and had absolutely destroyed the name of God. Think about it. The children of Israel who could never lose a battle. Couldn't win a battle. Nebuchadnezzar should have never been able to defeat the children of Israel. Because remember, when God's on your side, nobody can win. But because they had turned their back on God, he had to to chastise them. And so even in the midst of this context of chastisement and captivity, his heart and his thoughts toward them are thoughts of peace and not of evil. God is for us. And God before us, who can be against us? So we have that. We also have. He he says, "Their thoughts of peace and not of evil." He never desires to harm or hurt us. We should never be fearful or discouraged. You know, the fear of God's people today is so tragic to me. We have been gripped by fear. So many and so many um, so many believers in our nation are just gripped by fear these days. I hear so much pessimism coming out of Christians' mouths. I understand. <laughs> it's just a it's just a rough day. I get it. I actually literally, I told my wife, I said, keep me accountable. Every time I pass by a gas station, if I start to complain, stop me. And everything give thanks. Trust me, it's not easy having a 12-passenger you know, van. Those things aren't gas efficient. But um, the fact is, is uh, I can still trust the Lord. We as believers get frustrated. And look, we have a right to be concerned. But it should never turn into frustration and fear and anger. Because even what God may allow us to face in the days ahead, his thoughts toward us are thoughts of peace. And they're not of evil. To give us an expected end, that's a powerful statement. He has a powerful plan. He greatly desires to use you. His end is glorious, but the path isn't always easy to get there. So this is the context of this statement He's that we're about ready to read here at the end of the section here of Jeremiah 29. I want to remind you though of Hebrews 12. It says that furthermore we have Uh, In verse 9, speaking of God's chastisement working, it says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make strength. Paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. That's a powerful section of scripture dealing with the chastisement of God in our lives and how we're actually to allow that chastisement to be turned from something that would cause us to be discouraged and upset with God and literally be turned to something that causes us to have faith in God and to trust God and to be encouraged by Him. So God cares about you. He's committed to you this morning. If I can, I don't know how else to say it, though I'll just say it again. He's committed to you, He loves you. And he desires you, too. Notice what he says. Then shall you call upon me. You shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. We heard on Wednesday night a wonderful message by Brother Bosler, and he talked about, in James 4, the context of how the spirit uh at the envy. And I do believe there that there's some different debate, I think, in how that is trans- uh, is, could be interpreted. But um, I do believe that gives the idea of God's jealousy for us. God is jealous for you. He desires you. He desires for you to call out to him. He wants you to go and he wants you to pray unto him. And guess what? He says, I'll hearken unto you. James chapter four talks about that. He giveth more grace. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jeremiah 33, three, call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not. So you need to accept, you need to embrace the truth, of what God says in his word, but then you need to accept God's heart towards you. And then thirdly, pursue God until He's found. On the basis of the fact that, look, whatever the path I have to take that God has for me, I'm willing to take. Embrace truth. Don't embrace the people that have the easy way out, Christianity. Embrace the truth that is strictly in the Word of God. Secondly, um, accept the fact that God loves you, He's for you, His your best. Is in mind when he thinks when he's focused on your life. He desires a relationship. And then we pursue God. And that on that basis we pursue God until he's found. He says in verse 13, And you shall seek me and find me when? When is it that you're going to seek and find him? When you shall search for me with all of your heart. Can I just challenge us this, this uh, summer? Say, God, would you just so change me that? As I meet with you each day and I walk in your presence, that the things I get angry about, I don't get angry about anymore. The things I don't have peace about, I have a restlessness about. Lord, would you change me in this? God, it's just not even, even about those results. Ultimately, I know that will change. I just want to know you. And the Bible says in Psalm, be still and know that I am God. The only way you'll ever get to know God and to truly find him is to stop and let him work in your heart. That's why a time time element like an hour is so important. We can feel pretty good about that five minutes of reading the scripture, cup of coffee, and then run out the door. But that's not really knowing God. That's helpful, but that's not knowing God. It takes time. Think about how long it takes sometimes to just get your mind to actually stop running all the things that you think about that you've got to do or things that are going on or trials in your life and just to let God be God. Psalm twenty-two twenty-six 26 says, The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek Him. Your heart shall live forever. Psalm 27, 8, When thou sayest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. 63, 1 of Psalms said, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Psalm 105, 3 says, glory ye in this holy name, let the heart of them rejoice that seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face evermore. Psalm 119, 2, blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. Isaiah 55, 6, seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Hosea 10, 12, so do yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord, till He come and rain righteousness upon you. Matthew seven: Ask and it shall be given unto you; seek and ye shall find; knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth; he that seeketh findeth; and to him that knocketh it shall be open. There's ever a time that God's people got passionate about seeking God with our whole heart. It's now. Now, look, I was in Washington, D.C. back in March, and I was sitting with some of the most well-known Republicans, uh, conservatives, uh, that you could imagine. I interacted with both sides of the aisle, but in that setting, I was with them. And uh, and, and as they were talking and expressing their concern about our nation's uh, moral decline and what's going on, uh, several of them said if things don't change in two years, not just who's in charge, even though that makes a difference, but if we don't have some breakthrough in a couple of years, as was their timeline? We, there's no turning back. I thought, well, that's encouraging. Yeah. Uh, but they, they, actually, I was encouraged. You know why? Because they actually, and they said the only hope we have is God. That's encouraging to hear that, actually. So as God's people, though, we can get, get uh, all focused and caught up on, okay, God turned the nation around. Now, we Well, to pray for our nation. I'm not minimizing that. But I'm telling you what, folks. Seek the Lord till he be found in your life. You got several hundred people in this room this morning. If every single one of us would seek God and seek him and continue to meet with him, and let him change us, and seek his face, and expect him to be found, guess what? It would change this community. It would change this community. Not only are we to seek him with our whole heart, but ultimately we're going to experience the fullness of relationship. See, he said, I'll be found of you. I'll turn away your captivity. God doesn't want the people of Falls Baptist Church to be captive by the same sins week after week after week after week. Some of you are captive right now. You're captive to your thought life. You're captive to uh, other areas of discouragement, whether it be reaction to situations, whether it be a lack of faith in God, and whether it be unbelief that you're struggling with and you don't believe God can break through in a relationship. You have areas that you're just bound on, maybe even past failure in seeking God. You feel like, I just I don't have it. I don't know how to spend time with God. You just don't have the right view of him at all. And, and, you're, and you're struggling here today. Well, let, let me just say, say this. God will be found. It's just a simple faith. It's not faith. It's not trying to work up faith. It's, it's resting in the faithful one, as Hudson Taylor talked about. Psalm 1611 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Gypsy Smith was once asked, Well, how do you see a revival start? And he said this. Go home. You've heard this before, many of you. Go home, lock yourself in your room. Kneel down in the middle of your floor. Draw a chalk mark all around yourself and ask God to start the revival in that chalk mark. When he has answered your prayer, the revival will be on. We say, well, that's kind of okay. You know what it is, folks? It's just simply saying, God, you have my whole heart. See, all of us still have keys to little parts of our heart that we're just not willing to give to God. We're not willing to surrender this area. We have hidden things or whatever it is, and and we're and we're not willing to just say, God, Anything. Some of you may struggle with just surrender and what God's wanting you to do with your life. Maybe it's just surrender to being a witness for Him and you got holdbacks. Well, there's a reason you're not finding Him because you have to seek Him with your whole heart. And it's not something you have to work up, it's just saying, God, literally, you have everything. Do with me what you want. And God begins to work step by step by step in opening Himself up to you. Tori said this. this is important for our church to get. He says, I can give a prescription that will bring revival to any church or community or any city on earth. First, let a few Christians, they need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. This is the prime essential. If it's not done, everything else doesn't make sense. It'll come to nothing. Second, let them bind themselves together in a prayer group to pray for revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. Third, let them put themselves at the disposal of God to use him as he sees fit in winning others to Christ. That is all. This is sure to be a revival to any church or community. I've given this prescription around the world. It's been taken by many churches and many communities and in no instance has it ever failed. It cannot fail. We can't see God this summer if, if we're holding on to sin. But if we're willing to get right with God and be fully yielded to Him, and we bind ourselves together individually and then as we're called for corporate prayer, pastor Wednesday nights and other times that we'll call extra times for prayer, if we'll bind together to pray for revival, of course, that happens each Saturday night at, uh, 6 to 8, we bind together and seek God's face, and we pray together, and we com- put ourselves at the disposal of God to win souls, we will see breakthrough. Let me just encourage you folks, it just comes down to what we looked at at the beginning with men like Hudson Taylor and John Hyatt. It's not because they were just special guys. In fact, I think if you had been around them, you would have been obviously very much impressed with much of their lives, but you also would have said, wow, These men aren't quite the giants I thought they were. It's just they had a great God they had met with. So starting tomorrow, we have a six-week commitment about spending time with God an hour a day. Can I please urge you, as many of you take time tomorrow with the Lord, say, God, I'm not here just to feel good about having done what the church is doing. I want to know you. I want to meet with you. I want you to change my life this summer. There needs to be changes in me, God. I need to know you. I need to be like Hudson Taylor, who was a man who was distressed and then at peace. What was the difference? He got to know his God. He met God. And God wants to do that for each one of you. No matter what kind of a past you have, a discouragement in this area, can I urge you that God is all over you. Why? Because his thoughts toward you are thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. May you let him do what he wants to do in these weeks ahead. Let's bow our heads in prayer, please.